in a sermon I wrote almost four years ago, just shortly after Donald Trump had been elected president, I told the story of uh, some friends of mine who had a traumatic experience as parents. When one of their children was still a baby and crawling through an extremely unlikely set of circumstances, their baby crawled off of a second-story deck, balcony of some sort. And both parents saw it as it happened. Of course, they were horrified. They ran down the stairs, out the front door as fast as possible to try to get to her. They found their baby alive and crying, and they rushed her to the hospital. To their utter astonishment, their baby suffered no significant injuries from the fall. No significant injuries. No broken bones, no internal injuries. There was some external bruising, but that was about all. However, their doctor did find something from the x-rays and scans that was life-threatening for the child. I don't remember the official diagnosis, uh, but it was very rare, and most children died from it before they were ever even diagnosed because it didn't really present itself until it was too late. So as parents, my friends had this terribly bizarre experience where on the one hand they were traumatized and, and will be forever by having seen their baby fall from a second story window or second story deck. On the other hand, they might have lost her forever if that hadn't happened and they hadn't discovered this serious threat hiding in her body. Now, the reason I told that story in a sermon shortly after the election of Donald Trump almost four years ago was to illustrate a prayer that I had for our country. I knew that Trump was going to traumatize our country, but I also knew that his election revealed sickness and corruption in our nation's body that also threatened even worse devastation and destruction. My prayer was that his election would prove to be the event that revealed the ugly truths within our collective body as a nation that needed to be cut out and removed for good. I believe that part of this prayer has been fulfilled. Trump his administration and his GOP Senate, particularly enablers, have traumatized this country. And they have revealed much of the horrific corruption and rot of our systemic life. The question now becomes, will the life-threatening sickness be removed for good? I know that many of us are ready to have the surgery and move into a better future for 
all people. And that is important. It's not to go back to what was, but to move into what can be, what might be. So part of the reason I thought that the book of Deuteronomy would be good for us to study, to look at through sermons, was because it gives us God's vision for what a society can be and should be if we follow the ways of God. So far in this series, we have seen how this vision relates to things like wealth, economics in general, and justice as just a few of the aspects of what it looks like to live with the good of the whole community in mind, which is as God would have it. In this morning's scripture, Moses lets God's people know what they should look for in a king. For us in our context here in the United States, Moses' words proved to be a powerful reminder of what we should look for from leaders of all sorts, from pastors to presidents. And above all else, I believe this scripture reveals to us that God's leadership, leadership from a, a way of God, can be recognized by its commitment to serve others, not to be served. Leading up to this section uh, of Deuteronomy, just, just prior to these words, Moses has spoken about judges, priests, and prophets as leaders for God's people. But Moses recognizes that God's people will likely be influenced by the societies surrounding them. And that's why he gives this little uh, introduction about how when you enter the land your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, he just assumes it's going to happen at some point, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. So that's the, the context for this. The problem is that in many ways, and probably most ways, they aren't supposed to be like the nations, the peoples surrounding them. God wants Israel to show a better way of living in relationship to other people. So Moses says, first of all, when you are at that point and you ask for this, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Now, most of the commentators I have read on this uh, believe that uh, this was ideally, because uh, Moses doesn't talk particularly about it here, um, this was done through the role of the prophets. And we see that in the uh, first two kings of Israel, particularly Saul and then David. They were chosen through the prophet Samuel. And it happened similarly for later kings with other prophets. So in addition to that, Moses says, the rest of uh, 15, do not place a foreigner over you 
one who is not a fellow Israelite, your king must be from your own kin. Now, this provision seems to have been uh, a way to ensure that the king was familiar with the history and provisions of God's covenant relationship, this special relationship that God had with the Israelites. Um, one of my go-to experts on Deuteronomy, Walter Brueggemann, puts it this way. The question of royal power only arises when Israel is in the land. The overriding issue in all of Deuteronomy is how to manage living in the land covenantally with the covenant in mind so that it can be retained according to the promise of God. Moses' work is to provide a monarchy that will maintain the distinctiveness of Israel as Yahweh's chosen people. The approved king must be an Israelite and not a foreigner, and while such a provision may, be, may make an ethnic appeal, it more likely requires a candidate for kingship who is inculcated into and committed to a covenantal vision of community, one who remembers the covenant and does not forget. Since we live in a society that ideally does not seek to elevate any one religion above others, these initial provisions of leadership uh, from Moses are not as central for us in the same way, at least. For those of us who do believe in the Judeo-Christian God, they are, however, a great reminder for us to be in prayer with God when we seek to make our own decisions on how we vote ourselves, who we support, those kinds of things, and to pray for our communities as collectively we make a decision, as collectively we choose leaders, to be in prayer about those things with God. The next guidelines that Moses gives us uh, need a little cultural, at least the first two particularly, need a little cultural translation also, um, but have proven to be enormously important for recognizing godly leadership. First, Moses proclaims in verse 16, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses uh, for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Now, horses were essentially the, the, uh, the means for military power. We saw that part of the reason we used Psalm 20 as our opening call to worship was some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our, the Lord our God. The more horses and chariots a nation, a people had, the more powerful their military was. And so, in fact, this is about building up uh, a, a military, an army, and to the point that in the message, the verse is translated this way. Make sure the king doesn't build up a war machine. Ajith Fernando, Ajith Fernando, a commentator from Sri Lanka, writes that the acquisition of large numbers of these animals, horses, implies either 
an aggressive foreign policy, or a monarch who wishes to impress his people and his neighbors with his wealth and power. Again, Moses is saying this is something not to look for uh, and to be wary of in a leader. Next, Moses proclaims uh, one that's probably the most unfamiliar to us in um, our context. Uh, In addition to the, the horses, the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now, uh, this is more than likely to do with political alliances more than anything related to sex and, and relationships of the heart in that sort of context. Uh, Walter Brueggemann again explains that the danger of accumulating royal wives is that they, with the alliances and political commitments they signify, became an impetus and occasion for compromise with God. And Solomon was the perfect example of this. He built up a a huge harem, uh, largely due to political alliances. I was thinking about this, how um, Andrea and I have enjoyed the PBS series, Victoria, about the reign of Queen Victoria in England. And one of the intriguing and uh, very unfamiliar uh, subplots from our context is all the arranged marriages between royal families of different nations. Most of the marriages of the royal families of those times had very little to do with love and had almost everything to do with political strategy and political alliance. Well, that's what harems were for Eastern monarchs. Again, Moses warns against this. Finally, Moses proclaims the rest of verse 17. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And this provision needs no cultural translation. Using a position of leadership to amass wealth has always been a sign of corruption. So in the Hebrew original, all three of these warnings use the same revealing verb, heap up, heap up. So a king, a leader must not heap up horses, must not heap up harems, must not heap up precious metals. Daniel Block, a professor from Wheaton, gets at the heart of what Moses is saying. These prohibitions address three major temptations facing, and he writes it, facing ancient rulers. I would say facing any rulers. Lust for power, lust for status, and lust for wealth. The text does not prohibit the purchase of horses or marriage or the accumulation of some silver and gold. The threefold repetition of heap up emphasizes the ban concerning the king's exploitation of his office for personal gain. Again, godly leadership is recognized by its commitment to serve others, not to be served. Now notice the antidote to ungodly leadership that Moses proposes. 
verses 18 and 19, he says, when the king takes the throne of the kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow these things carefully. Moses is saying that each king is to personally, manually write out a copy of at least the book of Deuteronomy and that that king should carry that personal handwritten copy with him wherever he goes always and he should read from that every day. That's like saying that each president of the United States upon inauguration should personally handwritten, handwrite out a copy of the Constitution, carry it with them wherever they go, always, and read from it every day. The point being, Moses says, end of 19, that he may learn, or in our context, she as well, to revere the Lord their God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider themselves better than their brothers and sisters and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then the king and their descendants will reign a long time in Israel. That last provision from Moses about reading from God's word every day is one that is great for all of us to keep in mind. Constantly and consistently spending time with God's word because it's from God that we learn who we are as a people on our own, who we are in relationship to God and this world, and how to live in relationship to God and one another. Reverence of the Lord, as, as Moses points out, reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it leads us to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. These traits we hear from Moses are especially important in those we choose as leaders. Godly leadership is recognized by a commitment to serve others, not to be served. I don't think I need to spend really any time to show how Donald Trump embodies every aspect of leadership Moses warns against, and that he doesn't read at all, let alone God's word or the Constitution. But sadly, our history is full of failed leaders and our current government at many levels is riddled with those who are in it for themselves and not for others. In our present moment, I believe that the sickness and corruption plaguing our nation has been exposed to a degree, to a degree not seen since probably the late 60s to early 70s, if even then. As we seek to move into a better future, God calls us 
to look for better leadership, godly leadership, leadership in the way that God would have it, which is recognized by a commitment to serve others, not to be served. For those of us who are in the Christian church, this vision for leadership is ultimately fulfilled by our Lord and Savior Jesus himself. Jesus not only proclaimed this vision, he lived it. Listen again to his words in our gospel passage. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles and lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which he did. He laid down his own life. And therefore, Paul encourages us, wherever we are, or whatever our own part is in our communities. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship, any communion with the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded with Christ. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being God, didn't consider that power and control on earth something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made human, and being found as human, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thanks be to God.